Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast, where myself and my colleagues look at the technology driving the energy transition. I'm Peter White, as usual, I'm joined by Harry Morgan, who covers wind and hydrogen. Hi, Peter. Um, our solar specialist, Andrew Zwantenar, is on his way to Australia, uh, which is where he's going to be based for the uh, near future. Uh, so he won't be on the podcast today. And of course, our publisher, Simon Thompson. Hello. On the show today, we've, we're going to discuss our two lead stories, but they both seem to be about China getting to really, really to break out of its own market, um, both in wind turbines and in terms of where it makes batteries, uh, battery factories. And then we're going to take a look, we are going to take a look at our own country, UK's policy statement, which is designed to get away from Russian oil and gas, but also to meet climate commitments. Um, something we weren't mega impressed with. Um, first, let's talk about the results season for the Chinese wind companies and uh, what it might mean to Western turbine make. Yeah, so this this story all came about when we did our, our global wind tracking service, which is obviously coming out this week, um, and looking at actually the vendors that are providing those wind turbines across the world. So obviously 92.5 gigawatts were installed worldwide. And as usual, it's a European company that's topping that list. It's Vestas, which is uh, regained top spot with installing around 15.2 gigawatts of turbines. Now, how do you think it did that? I mean, how, how, is that just the merger um, where it's taken over its... Um offshore subsidiary i think it's um it's historic capacity to be honest um vestas has always been sort of up there in terms of global production last year general electric took the top spot but that was largely due to a big push of installations in the us ahead of their production tax credit uh, deadline uh, vestas were were up there last year uh, they've been up there every year prior to that i think it's just them running at production at sort of their maximum production capacity vestas has had a really tricky year we've seen while they were the only European sort of Western turbo maker to actually turn a profit this year, they're still really struggling to with the supply chain sort of shortages. I mean, a lot of their uh, turbo- is that pro- that's primarily steel is the issue. Yeah, so steel. I mean, it's up to sort of eighty percent of the mass of a turbine. Um, obviously, steel prices have um, been inflated massively over the past year. It's been the same across things like logistics. Um, but if you're actually looking at the the cost of a turbine. So I think it's something around um, $725,000 per megawatt um, is what we normally see for, for turbines like this. Um, Vestas are actually often selling their turbines for a loss in instances where they can actually make up the distance with long-term service contracts. So that's how much their margins have been squeezed. And uh, yeah, we're seeing that across the board. And, and uh, but Chinese companies, their cost of um, per megawatt uh, for producing a turbine is somewhat less, you're saying? It's, it's around half. So, I mean, China um, obviously dominates the commodity. I mean, how do they do that? So, yeah, it's 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 a combination of things. So, that while they've got a cost of... Often people rush to think that it's going to be the cost of labour in China, but realistically, that's only around 5% lower than the West now once you sort of adjust for, just for sort of a currency. It's partially due to the fact that they dominate the commodity production for steel, so they're getting sort of beneficial supply contracts there. But realistically, it's due to the fact that they've managed to build out this huge production capacity based on the generous incentives of the Chinese government. So uh, we have really generous feed-in tariffs for onshore wind that ended last year and for offshore wind that ended this year. We saw a huge amount of installations um, from China in both of those sectors. This means that the revenue paid for the factories, not debt. Yeah, so this is is the revenue from the... um, from, from the projects that they're actually producing and the turbines they're actually selling. So we saw China install more than half of global wind capacity this year, and it was a very similar story last year. So realistically, we're looking at these companies, Goldwind, Mingyang, that have built up the huge production capacity and are now being able to produce 
uh, onshore wind turbines for around $556,000 per megawatt, which is, yeah, well below the cost, the cost that we'd normally see from, from the Western OEMs. I was going to say, well, Festas, GE, Camisa, the, the wind turbines, they work. How about the Chinese? So, yeah, this is something that we, that's been sort of a, a, a long-standing sort of thought of the wind industry, that China wouldn't be able to do what it did in the solar sector and maybe cut certain corners in terms of the quality of these of, of the units. Uh, but really, so we've seen quite a lot of General Electric units fail. So we've seen it for the same investors, the same for Siemens Gamisa over the past couple of years, uh, certainly to the point where question marks are sort of lingering around the quality of their units. I mean, we still would assume that they're slightly higher than the, their competitors in China. But when we get to this low price, it's getting to the point where it's almost worth taking the risk. And I think a lot of these, a lot of countries where uh, you're sort of, they're racing to actually install low, low cost renewable energy, they actually are starting to look towards the Chinese OEMs. And while the Chinese OEMs have... Let's go right. You've got a lower cost per megawatt with turbines, which are typically six to 10 megawatts maximum. Uh, in China, and we're installing much uh, larger turbines offshore than that. And so suddenly, if they make up the gap in terms of size uh, on offshore, they're going to be even cheaper still. Yeah, so I mean, they've made up the gap in offshore as well in terms of cost. So if we're looking, oh, sorry, I just want to correct the figures I was talking about earlier. So if we're looking at the cost to produce a wind turbine from a Western OEM, it's around $725,000 per megawatt. For China, yeah. it's around $375,000 per megawatt. For, and for offshore, protection costs in the West is $1.1 million per megawatt, whereas China, that's now down to around 556000 So in both cases, it's around half. And, it's get, and while you have the Western companies producing maybe larger turbines or historically producing larger turbines, so being able to penetrate the offshore market slightly more, we've actually seen Mingyang announce a 16 megawatt model over the past year. We've seen uh, China State Shipbuilding Corporation also announce a 16 megawatt uh, model. So in the next year or so, and we've, we'll definitely see Chinese turbines. So they're 120, 130 metre rotors. Yeah, exactly. And Iberdrola actually in the past few weeks has actually announced that they're in discussions with Chinese turbine makers just to have those uh, projects in European waters with Chinese turbines. So that'll be a when first. You look, when you that. look at those kind of super utilities that, that are strong in Europe and that are doing really well in America, you, you, you know, they're a global entity now. They're not, they, if they hitch their wagons purely to European or, or American suppliers um, just for the sake of it, and they get they find that their the electricity they produce is going to be too expensive. They have a commitment to their customers, so they're not going to they're going to buy cheap as long as they know it's going to work. Yeah, exactly. And I think once if China managed to demonstrate their turbines success, successfully outside of China, where we obviously can't necessarily gather all the information we'd like about projects, then that's where we start to see a real shift in the marketplace. And I think towards China, um, and I think the only way really that. Well, so the Europeans, I think they'll respond in two ways. Uh, they could respond by really focusing on innovation, so actually focusing on those little bits of efficiency in terms of reducing the wake and blockage effect, uh, improving resistance to lightning and high wind speeds. Um, but what I think we're almost more likely to see is the Western OEMs sort of complaining to governments and looking to implement more trade duties and tariffs, probably pointing back to COVID-19 and looking at how much they've struggled through that and saying, oh, we need this incentive, we're going to be producing these, this renewable energy, but we're going to be doing but, but the real weapon um, that I don't think you mentioned in the story is IPR. So intellectual property in China, it's very hard to protect your intellectual property against a Chinese local company. But the moment that company steps out of China, as long as it goes to a, a European US friendly uh, nation, 
the, the, um, there is an opportunity to sue on patent, patent breaches. Now, if you go to, say, most of the states of Africa, they don't have advanced patent law. If you go to most of the states in uh, the Asian Tigers, not, not there either, or, in, or, or, or India. So it's only when you actually land in Europe or America that the intellectual property can be used as a protection. And do we want, but surely that's not something we want to see. We don't want to see um, sort of these patent disputes sort of slowing I've down. I've never wanted to see it, but that's, that's how you protect yourself against China. I mean, that's precisely how in other industries, in electronics, in televisions, in, in other industries, you, it's either dumping, you know, you, you accuse China of dumping because they're selling below their price uh, and you put a tariff on it, or you say that they've broken uh, intellectual property law. So, you know, patents. So one, one, one way or the other, and you get a license fee from them. The, the trouble is, um, most people that sue like that, a little bit like Apple suing Samsung. I know Samsung's not, not Chinese, but it's Korean, but it's the same kind of thing. Apple's uh, sued um, Samsung on look and feel of its phones uh, and on some of the technical processes. And it did it in American courts and got huge um, payouts, over a billion dollars. But after all that was said and done, it's, um, it's Android phones, which effectively look like Apple phones now, uh, and with the leading proponent being Samsung, who's, who's won that. You, you can hold them at bay for a little while for a three or four year court battle. But it is what they do. It's automatically the first thing they reach for, intellectual property. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's definitely what we'll see within the US market as well. I think the, the key markets that I imagine that, um, and that we're already seeing places, places like Mingyang and Envision entering are places like Vietnam, places like Japan, places like India. Uh, we're seeing some some movements in Italy as well, but I think that's just the, um, that's just a, a habit of them moving, trying to move towards Europe. There's a huge difference between Vestas. I mean, Siemens Gamesa is part of an energy conglomerate because it owns Siemens Energy as well. So it's got oil and gas turbine assets. Who wants those? Um, but GE is part of a huge convoy. And if it starts to get pricing issues around its product set, you know, it will sell it off. I mean, it's also in the whole energy sector, both green and non-green, as well as being in the aircraft engine sector, as well as being in a few other, you know, um, well, it did have a medical uh, section. Um, And it's being revamped all the time. So GE, I can see a Chinese company ending up owning that. Yeah, that's an interesting point because we saw we saw Siemens Gamesa actually potentially being sort of lined up by the acquisition from from some Chinese owners quite recently. It'll be interesting for these companies because obviously, especially for Gen- uh, for GE, their wind power business is one of their only real growth areas. But similarly, they're also going to be facing thinner margins than they used to. Um, do you think that that's something that they would sell at this point, or do you think they're going to be, we're going to be no, too close? No, they've been really things? adamant. Yeah, you know, they've been really adamant since uh, Larry Colt took over the company that that's an asset. And he's talked and talked and talked about, oh, we, we're expecting the margins to settle down on on turbines next year. And he's had about one year of half-decent margins on the turbines, maybe even half a year before um, the pandemic hit, before all of these issues around the pandemic, you know, and high prices for steel have hit. So he's he's going to be, investors will look at that and say, well, for five years he's told us it'll be, there'll be better margins. There aren't. 
you know, why do we need this? Why do we need this, um, you know, that bad business? I mean, that's why companies in uh, America uh, don't aren't still in the solar industry because they just didn't think it was worth it because the margins weren't um, good enough. Just going over to the other story for a second, you know, it, it was it was apropos of nothing. We just saw CATL uh, launching or getting the final approvals on its first factory outside of China in, in Germany, as it happens to make to make uh, lithium-ion batteries. It, it's it's kind of seen as the master of LFP versions of that battery. And it's done partnerships with um, with Tesla in, in China. So all the Beijing Teslas are um, have CATL battery in them, and it, it's it, it's exactly the same issue. It's going to going to hit here. We've got America without enough battery supply, all building factories starting now. Final investment decision now next year, uh, finishing them in 24, 25, and twenty six. Uh, just as that industry is going to be overrun with competitors around the globe, just as China um, starts manufacturing, not just in China, but manufacturing in Europe. Uh, and I mean, CATL has deals with virtually every one of the European car makers. You know, it's got Tesla, but it's also um, got companies like BMW, um, Volkswagen, Stellantis, Honda, in, in China, companies like NIO, um, BAIC, and Geely, uh, Toyota, Volvo, Xpeng. You know, this is a com- company who can put up a factory anywhere and find a customer down, down the road. This, this ha- hasn't happened yet. This factory is meant to be operational in the end of 22. It's the first of many. And of course, one thing about the battery industry is you don't have to borrow a load of money. You can just get guaranteed revenue from a car maker who suddenly sees too late that, oh dear, I'm going to need more battery than I've got my hands on. I will guarantee orders to that. And then you go to any bank and say, I've got guaranteed orders. You can go to a bank in China. You can go to a, a, a local bank saying, I'm going to manufacture on your doorstep. You can go to you can go public on the American stock market. You can get money, no oceans of money. So. Although, although they haven't, they're not so aggressive and outgoing as uh, as perhaps they are in the wind turbine business. Yet, this is a, this is a signal that it started. I mean, the, the, so how about this? Suddenly, all the Western companies that are in renewable energies can't make can't make a profit because they're they're up against really aggressive Chinese suppliers with um, multiple revenue streams, multiple sources of um, of debt. So. There's a serious possibility five years from now that investors in the West are less interested in the green industry because they've been stunned because they, they've been investing in companies that have not made it and ended up with um, margins being crushed by Chinese competitors. And do you think that that's something that, that will be allowed by, by governments? Do you think that, I mean, this is especially post uh, person in, in the wake of this Russian-Ukraine invasion, is that it's it's highlighted how the West being dependent on sort of a, sing, a single country for for the supply of of energy commodities in particular, how damaging that can be for uh, for economies, how damaging that be for for populations as well. Do you think that that's something that they'll be aware of in terms of trying to reduce supply? And do you think that that will that this protectionism will come in the sense of punishing overseas um, industry, or do you think it will come in the sense of incentivizing uh, domestic production? 
time and time again, from the first time you and I ever talked about it, the idea of a cross-border carbon tariff suddenly makes so much sense for the world. If, if, if somebody is really that much better off than you are and that they can make things really cheaply, but if they're doing it with CO2-based energy and if they're doing it with transport uh, routes that, that bring the, the device 10,000 miles and, and that the, they're being punished for using carbon in the manufacture and in the transport, then surely you, you could, you've got a chance of setting up local, nearer businesses which are greener uh, and to make stuff locally. So the whole point about uh, that carbon border tax is if Europe exercises it, America has to find a mechanism to exercise it as well. China has to find a way around it, i.e. by demonstrating how um, green their industries are. It acts as a massive um, push towards um, climate ambition. At the same time, it acts a massive push towards manufacturing on your doorstep with reduced... Um, that's one of the things that have come up in the, in the battery side, is that the recycling companies are all basically recycling locally in America, even if the battery was made in China. So if you look at electric vehicle uh, there, in the future, the three or four um, American companies that are going public on, on the idea of recycling lithium-ion batteries, they're, they're, they're going to take your car from, um, from, where, from where you finished with it, uh, take the batteries out, uh, take them no more than 30 or 40 miles and process them there and take them to a factory in America to sell the lithium to put into a new new battery. That's that's going to be a way of trapping the uh, the materials inside the state and keeping the... Uh, you'd have to be incredibly cheap um, to make manufacturing costs to, you, you know, ship it to China You've got the shipment cost there, and then and then ship it back from China after you've recycled it and turned it into a new battery. You'd have to have a massive advantage to, to make that financially viable. Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's the that's the key here is placing um, value on, and I think that's this is where the Europeans actually have to note that they have an advantage and they have to push for this from almost a, a global perspective economically is actually putting a price on on this sort of uh, environmental value and actually... But, but the, the politicians in Europe, though, are listening and, and they have the, the, the uh, fossil fuel companies have the ear of the politicians and so do the nuclear companies have the ear of the politicians because they're currently uh, rich well often uh, right now. But we're going to have to get used to the idea that we've got to build and sustain and support a manufacturing industry again. Yeah, there's a lot of countries in Europe have not been able to do that for the last 40 years. And, and that's going to be a transition which has got to be policy-led. Um, and, and on that point, let's jump to the last story yeah. uh, of the day, which um, you've, um, you've done an analysis. I mean, again, we apologise for covering our own country. There's a, a story to be made about how Americans responded to the Russian-Ukraine war. And there's a story to be made about how Europe has responded to the Russian-Ukraine war, but the, the, the story we're talking about today is how the UK government sees it, it its dual aims of um, responding to that war and getting off of Russian uh, gas and oil imports, but at the same time uh, keeping its climate um, ambition alive. 
Yeah, it's, yeah, it's funny you saying that. Yeah, the um, uh, oil and gas companies and stuff have the ears of the UK politicians because that's exactly kind of what we've seen here. And I think so. I mean, to, it's, it's difficult to summarise um, the British energy security strategy that came out this week um, because it's so all over the place that it's difficult to point to sort of an overarching conclusion of it. Um, basically, we've seen an increase in the UK's uh, ambitions in terms of renewables, which is obviously great. We'd like to see that. Um, they've increased their targets for wind, uh, offshore, well, for offshore wind, uh, for solar um, and for hydrogen. Uh, so that's gone from 40 gigawatts to 50 gigawatts for offshore wind and from 5 gigawatts to 10 gigawatts for hydrogen. Um, but we've also seen, and I think this is probably the, the crux of what we've seen in the strategy, is a, a really big push for nuclear. We've been covering this for weeks. I mean, I know, Peter, you've written about it. Uh, the plan to have eight new nuclear plants um, over the next uh, sort of, well, by 2030, they're proposing, which is, um, I mean, almost impossible to imagine, given the fact that it takes 10 you years to develop. You have to fund $100 billion now. Yeah, and I mean, it, it takes it takes 10 years to develop anything in nuclear. So by seeing anything before 2030 um, is is very unrealistic. Even if And even if we had the small modular reactors that we're talking about, those aren't going to be commercially viable until at least uh, two, three years' time. So actually seeing those deployed on a commercial scale, that won't be until 2030, 2035 either. You, yeah, you've got two, two or three years' time, you do your first one, it's 400 megawatts. You know, you, you let that run for a year or two, and then it's six or seven years' time. Then you do four more, and they're each 400 megawatts. you barely got a gigawatt out of the door by 2030. Uh, and, and all right, you, now you might have an export and you might be able to export to Europe and you might be able to uh, even export to America. You might have, yeah. But meanwhile, um, you've, you've, the, the current government has then failed to deliver on all its promises. Yeah, I mean, you've got to look at the fact that, so realistically, this strategy should and is in, uh, in name and probably name alone set out to solve two crises. So it's trying to solve, firstly, the climate crisis, um, and it's trying to solve the fact that we need to reduce um, our dependence on imports, and more specifically Russian imports, um, and to address the fact that the the prices of energy in this country are going through the roof. Um, these are not crises that are twenty thirty going to be. You can't address these for, by twenty thirty. That they need to be addressed now, and that's what I think this has just completely uh, failed to failed to overlook, failed to look at. Really, um, there's two key things that the UK should be doing. Uh, if it wants to, to actually reduce, uh, firstly, reduce uh, reduce all three, to so reduce imports, reduce bills, and reduce carbon emissions. And those those are obvious. There's, it's insulating the homes in the country, and it's it's installing more onshore wind, because those are things that can be installed in a matter of months. I mean, well, when you say insulating the homes, I think at the same time, natural gas is burnt in. I think you use the figure 78% of uh, homes. Are, it might even be more than that, um, for heat. Yes. Um, so, so the adoption of a heat pump strategy that actually has some teeth is part of that um, uh, energy uh, efficiency cycle as well. You know, heat the homes differently, keep the heat in. Yes, exactly. And I think that's that's definitely something that you want to see as part of the sort of longer term horizon thing. But obviously, installing these heat pumps and producing these heat pumps at the scale that we'd want to see would take a bit of time, probably one, two years. But if we're looking to address things by this winter, which is what we need to be doing, really. I mean, we saw the IPCC report saying that we need to act now. Obviously, we've seen um, and, and the, the price of electricity and gas in this country is, uh, I think it's risen by more than 100% in many cases. Um, and that's only going to get worse as we, as we move towards winter again. Um, if, if you could, you can, I mean, you can install installation in a matter of months. And given the fact that we've got 800 shovel-ready uh, onshore wind farms that, that could be installed 
just if they receive the funding, if if the actual developers of these projects can actually put um, put money down to buy an off off the shelf wind turbine, then those could be developed in a matter of months as well. So, um, it, those are two ways that we could actually see. Yeah, definitely wind turbines. That would give us more electricity, but uh, and that might push gas driven electricity off off the auction um, uh, most days. Um, but the um, but the idea that, that we the problem with energy efficiency is this idea of a deep retrofit. When you come to a home, there's no good just putting um, insulation in the roof. Um, there's no good just saying, "Oh, we'll only do homes with um, uh, uh, with a, a, a an air gap in the walls and squirt it full of insulating foam." Um, you, you have to change the windows. You have to look at the thickness of the rock. You have to work out what the cost is. And to do that, you need a whole, whole cohort of people trained to do deep retrofit. And, they, they're, they're, and this is chicken and egg. If the government doesn't have a consistent policy on how you deep retrofit your home and how they help you pay for it, then those people are not going to go and get trained. Therefore, if you pick up the phone and try and get your home insulated right now, you basically have a guy who comes along and says, tut tut, it costs you 15 grand, mate. Uh, and you, it's not, and that's why it's not happening. So, I mean, they have to address the problem like grown-ups. And, and that's why it's a three or four year problem. Um, you, you can give people money for insulating their homes. And if that money is wasted, you're back to square one. Um, you know, and you need, so the, the, one of the key things is, not even got to teach people how to do it, you've got to teach another cohort of people to test they've done it right and give it a license. So, so th those two things we've been talking about for eight or nine years now, no progress so far. I mean, if yeah, if you're a if you're a UK oil or gas company, the last thing you want to do is see homes better insulated. It means less revenues, um, and I think that that is clearly what's going on here. I think the other thing is that it's just obvious that the UK government, while it's talking about its changed ambitions, it hasn't changed. I mean, the the fact that. Uh, onshore wind has had a moratorium since 2015 and is pretty much still seeing the same treatment now that's a uh, case in point for that the fact that we've we're trying to license more um oil and gas leasing as part of this project um within and then to have a sort of net zero compliant oil sector by 2050 um just shows <laughs> the the uk government don't understand what net zero means um I so think going back to the cameron era which is nearly 10 years ago uh, the, the the plan was 33 percent Nuclear, 33%. Wind and solar, 33%. Um, carbon capture on existing gas turbines. So the, the current strategy is car nuclear, if anything, has gone down to 25%. Uh, wind has perhaps gone up to 35%. But through offshore um, wind, that is as well. That's definitely not it, to do with onshore wind. Uh, yeah, exactly. But the aim... The aim uh, the target of the government is, is, is to do it through offshore wind, yeah. not onshore. Uh, and, and it was Cameron that brought in the law that said, oh, no, you know, you can't, basically, you can't put up um, a wind farm for love of money if the council um, votes against you and every council votes against them. So that, that, that's got to be undone. Uh, and that's got to be done, undone by a government. And the go it, what's insane is the day after this announcement came out, the Labour Party. Well, not wanting to be left behind, the other big party in the UK said, yeah, we're pro-nuclear as well. 
and it's the most expensive form of energy on the planet. What are they thinking? You know, that means all the politicians are idiots, not just the ones in power. It's just, it's, and who are the, and how do they not know that? Because the scientists informing them are informing them because they have a vested interest of their own. And, and, and they're listening more to BP and Shell than they do to their own climate change committee, uh, who also have vested interests set on them as well. Yeah, I think the, the crazy thing about it is that we're looking at um, the pledges for nuclear that aren't going to be realised until 20, uh, the mid-2030s. And if we think about what the cost of solar per storage plus wi or wind per storage is going to be in that time frame, um, I mean, it's there's, there's going to be absolutely no argument for nuclear then. Um, so I think it just shows a, a lack of appreciation of what the renewable energy industry has done over the past 10, 15 years in terms of reducing prices and what they'll continue to do over the next the next 10 to 15 years. I think that's, um, it, yeah, it just shows a, la a lack of government understanding of what's, what's been happening. I mean, I, I do agree with the insulation thing. If, if we put that through education and we, we get two classes of, of, of organisations emerging, I can come and do a Detroit retrofit on your home. I, I can help you apply for the money from it from government. I can test whether this company is going to actually save you money and I can give them a certificate. Those two classes, of people, that's going to take a while. But they've been talking about it for years, no, ch no change in it. But what about somebody putting some money into um, heat pumps? I mean, you could, do, um, you could do a million, two million homes in almost no time at all if you put a sufficient incentive um, in place to, um, to install heat pumps in people's homes. Uh, and, and the price of the heat pumps would come down dramatically as volumes took off. They're, they're unaffordable at the moment. Anyway, uh, all these stories and much less frustration um, in the rest of the issue. Um, and you need to go to rethinkresearch.biz. You need to click on energy. Uh, you click on the weekly analysis to read these stories. You click on the podcast to listen to this podcast. Um, the real juice of what we produce is in forecasts and data. That's where our paying subscribers get all their uh, interesting uh, strategy help. Um, I've been Peter White. This is, uh, and so thank you, and we'll see you in the next podcast.